You know, I've, I've been thinking about this. Um, is, is being a Christian harder or easier than you imagined? Is being a Christian harder or easier than you imagined? If someone were to ask you, what does it feel like to be a Christian? What would you say? What does it feel like to be a Christian? What has the Christian life been like for you? I wish we had more time just to kind of think about that. I imagine our responses are varied from the wonderful to the hard. I imagine that the Apostle Peter captures your answers to those questions in today's passage. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn uh, to 1 Peter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9. And in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, Peter speaks confidently of what the Lord was doing in the lives of the saints, of God's people in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is where modern-day Turkey is. Remember, we don't know much about Peter's relationship with these churches. We don't know if these were churches that he had planted. We don't know if these are churches that he had ever been to. We don't know what kind of reports he was getting back from these churches. Had a bunch of individuals come from those churches and told him about the suffering that they were going through? It's clear from the letter that they, had been, that they were Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ. It's clear that they were going through persecution, maybe not to the point of being killed. The book doesn't mention that, but they were definitely being, being ostracized for their faith in Christ. They were being maligned and slandered. So we don't really know exactly how much Peter knows about all these churches, if he even knew them firsthand. But Peter has, has a knowledge about them, a certainty about them, confidence in speaking about these saints. And remember, these, faint, these saints are from a widespread area. Approximately the area he's writing to is about three-fourths of the size of California. To a huge area. So obviously not all of their experiences was the same. But he knows what is true of them in their lives as sojourners, as strangers, as pilgrims in this world, as aliens, as exiles, some of the language that our versions has. Peter understands both the joys and the trials that God's chosen people suffer as they journey through this life. He understands how you would answer that question. Is being a Christian harder or easier than I imagined? He knows how you would answer, what does it feel like to be a Christian? Because that's the, the common Christian experience. What he says of their journey will be true of ours as well. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 6 through 9. And as we read through it, you'll notice that there's no, there's no commands here. Verses 6 through 9, he's going to be describing people, many of whom he's never met. So what we're going to see here is timelessly true of God's people. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Coming to our verse for this morning. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning as your people, chosen according to your foreknowledge, being sanctified by your spirit for obedience to you and being sprinkled with the blood of your son. We are humbled by the great privileges that uh, these verses show us, these, these certainties we, we learned about last week in verses 3 through 5, this an unfading hope, this inheritance we have to look forward to, that your own power, the power with which you created the world is, is guarding us, is, is keeping us believing until we experience the fullness of salvation. So, Lord, we come this morning, as you know, um, between the, the already experienced and the not yet experienced. We come uh, by your grace, many of us, the majority of us, saved, believing in Christ alone. And yet, Lord, not experiencing the fullness of that salvation as we once will. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for what Peter describes here. Um, he, is, he is real with us about what it is like to be on this journey, to be on this Christian path, to be longing for heaven and to be here, Lord, to not be at home here. So I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged as we get into your word this morning, as we look at verses 6 through 9, that, that your spirit would work in our hearts, Lord. I pray, Father, that those who are your people would be affirmed that you are indeed working in our lives. And those who don't know you, Lord, would see that they are, are missing out, Lord. They would see that that is not describing of them. Lord, please may your word be effective. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see three aspects of how God's people journey through this world. Three aspects of how God's people journey through this world so that you will be encouraged as you recognize God's work in your life. We see three aspects of how God's people journey through this world so that you will be encouraged as you recognize God's work in your life. I believe that Peter's primary purpose in these verses is to encourage the saints by doing exactly, exactly that, describing what God is doing in their lives. There's, there's no commands here. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't some implications we should draw. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be challenging to our hearts. But he's encouraging them because of what he knows to be true about these, really a very diverse group of saints. As Peter affirms these saints, we're reminded that Peter has experienced living on this journey, on this sojourn away from his King Jesus for the last 30 years. He knows what it is, as uh, verse 1 says, to reside as aliens, because he was, as verse 2 describes, being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He understands the pattern of what God's people feel and of what God's people experience while on this lifelong sojourn. So by God's grace this morning, you'll be encouraged as you recognize God's work in your life. So let's look at this first aspect, this first aspect of our Christian journey. God's people journey while rejoicing in both present and future certainties. God's people journey while rejoicing in both present and future certainties. The section, verses 6 through 9, which in our Greek Bible is one long sentence, verses 6 through 9, begins and ends with joy. Joy is the theme of this four-verse chunk. It begins in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. And that same word, greatly rejoice, is used in verse 9, or, 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 or at the end of verse 8 there. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The theme of this section is joy. It's the same Greek word used in both verses 6 and 8. To greatly rejoice. Saying to exalt. To be overjoyed. Our uh, lexicon says that it's the kind of rejoicing that might be uh, uh, accompanied by verbal expressions. You might think of it as shouting or cheering. But even... More humorous, it says, appropriate body movement. So I'm not sure what the lexicon defines as appropriate body movement, uh, but you can understand that this is a joy that encapsulates your body. Like, 
I, I think of maybe cheering at a sporting event. Now, notice that this is not everything that the Christian life is. We're going to see that there's more to the Christian life than that, but that this is part of the Christian life, that this is an aspect of this Christian journey. It is greatly rejoicing. This joy is in the present tense. Peter's not just saying that they will rejoice someday. When you get to heaven, you're going to rejoice like this. You're going to greatly rejoice someday. It's present tense. It's ongoing now. They are currently rejoicing. And remember, he's saying this to saints who are going through persecution. He's saying this to saints. I don't know if he's even met these saints. But he knows that that is true of God's people, that they are rejoicing. They are greatly rejoicing. Peter expands upon the nature of this joy in verse 8. And because this theme of joy begins and ends, the section I'm, I'm going to deal with is First, so let's look at the uh, at eight. It says, "You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." It's an inexpressible joy, a joy that leaves us speechless. Maybe you've been given some good news in the past that has left you dumbfounded. Maybe you've received a gift that you're like, "I don't know what to say." You're so appreciative and so blessed. You just you just don't even you have no words. Peter also describes this great rejoicing, inexpressible and full of glory. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. That full of glory, or in your NASB note, it says glorified. What is glorified joy? What's full of glory joy? Wayne Grudem in his commentary helps with that. This word would remind Peter's readers of the frequent Old Testament mention of the glory of God. For those who grew up reading the, the, old, the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, it is the same word there. That bright, shining radiance which surrounded the presence of God himself. The sense of this word could be given more fully by paraphrasing, and, and this is helpful. Joy that has been infused with heavenly glory and that still possesses the radiance of that glory. That's a very descriptive way of describing this joy. Joy that's been infused with heavenly glory. The joy that comes from being in God's presence. That still possesses the radiance of that glory. It is thus joy that results from being in the presence of God himself, Grudem continues. And joy that even now partakes of the character of heaven. It is the joy of heaven before heaven. This is the joy that Peter is saying to all those saints going through all the all kinds of persecution. This is your joy. In this you rejoice. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Exodus 34, verse 30, has, this, uh, has a very similar word to this. And it describes how Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. This is after Moses has been talking to God. And that word for shone is this word glorified. His face was glorified. His face was filled with glory. This is the kind of joy that requires sunglasses. It is a radiant joy. Inexpressible and full of glory. In verse 6, if we go back up, he's going to explain the reason for this joy. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Well, what is this? What, what are we greatly rejoicing? And it looks back to the certainties we looked at last time we were in 1 Peter, verses 3-5. through that God's people have been born again by a merciful Father. That God's people have a living hope through Christ's resurrection. And me, as someone who knows God, who's been saved by God's grace, can't read these verses and feel some joy, right? As it says, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is one of those certainties. There's another certainty in verse 4. 1 Peter 1, verse 4, that inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's another of the certainties in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is what we greatly rejoice in. As we meditate on those, we greatly rejoice. If we go ahead now to that where that theme takes us at the end of verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 9 tells us what the reason for that joy is. You're obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
We rejoice now in this life because of what we are obtaining now in the present tense, what we are already getting in the process of receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We rejoice, and we, we talked about salvation last time, that it is something that's done and finished. At least there are aspects of it. We have been saved from guilt of sin. We are forgiven if your faith is in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We rejoice because of this salvation which has rescued us from slavery to sin and from the dominion of sin. But there's also a future rejoicing. We rejoice because we will one day be rescued from the influence of sin when we are transformed to be like Christ when we see Christ. And we rejoice in that, that when we see him, we're going to be made like him. And that is cause for rejoicing. We rejoice because we will be, we will experience being rescued from God's wrath. Romans 5, 9, I read these verses a couple weeks ago. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, We've already been declared righteous because of his sacrifice. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. When he comes back, we don't fear. We look forward to his return. We know that we are going to obtain salvation. This is why we rejoice. We rejoice because we know when Christ comes, as Matthew 25 verse 34 says, the king will say to those on his right, you know that, that, that uh, where he talks about separating the sheep from the goats? We know that we are one of the sheep. We know that he's going to say to us, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is why we rejoice. Because we are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We know where this is going. Paul writes with confidence about these saints because he knows what they're rejoicing in. He knows what the content of their faith is. Brothers and sisters, I can say that to you this morning. In this, you greatly rejoice. In the hope that you have. In the inheritance that you have. That you know that God's power is preserving you through faith. That you are obtaining the salvation of your souls. As we meditate on what we receive, we join in this rejoicing. As we think about all of these salvation blessings, our heart's response is joy. Now, Peter's not promising that God's people are going to only experience joy. In fact, we'll see that in the next verse. The Christian life is one not a, of, of not only experiencing joy. Neither does Peter say that you're going to experience the fullness of joy. Yes, it is a glorified joy. It is a joy full of glory. It's a joy that's tasted of heaven. But we know we've not yet seen Christ. We are still trapped in these bodies that are influenced by sin. What we are is not yet become what, I mean, what we will be is not what we, yet we are. Peter doesn't say that we'll never have to choose to rejoice by focusing our attention and saying, Lord, my heart is dry. I want to rejoice. Peter doesn't say that you won't have to fight distractions and sin that get in the way of your rejoicing. But it doesn't change the fact that he can write to saints, and we don't even know if he's ever been to them or not. We don't even know. And I mean, as a broad group, just as I can say to you this morning, in this you greatly rejoice because you are a believer. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are those who greatly rejoice. You have tasted of that inexpressible joy that radiant joy, that full of glory joy. That is who we are. We are the rejoicers. That is what our journey is. It is one of rejoicing. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, if you don't feel like you've got that joy this morning, is to meditate on these present and future certainties of your salvation. It is so easy to fill our meditations with our trials with our aches and pains, with our disappointments, with our sins, with our failures. I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about those things and pray about them. But fill our meditations with what we've been learning in 1 Peter. 
know many of you, at least some of you, are memorizing this first section of 1 Peter 1. Be meditating on it so that you will rejoice in these certainties. In this you rejoice. It's not just you rejoice. It's in this you rejoice. Our rejoicing has content. Now, we know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Those people who are enjoying the fruit of the Spirit in their life, who are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, are those who are walking by the Spirit. In the context of Galatians, we know that walking by the Spirit is meditating on the gospel. It is believing in Christ. It is hoping in Christ alone. It is turning away from works of the flesh. That is how we have this fruit of the Spirit in our life, this joy that he's talking about. It is to have our hearts rich with the gospel. Now, Peter could have written, and you can imagine this for a minute. You could have imagined him starting in verse 6 and going straight on to the end of verse 8 and continuing to verse 9. He could have written, In this you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of, the, of your faith the salvation of your souls. He could have said that, right? It would have been great. Everything he just described in verses 3 through 5, In this you greatly rejoice as you obtain through the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. He could have just kept going. He uses the same word twice, and it almost makes me think that may, maybe he thought about just going on, but he pauses because he knows that that's not the only aspect of our Christian journey, of what it's like to be a stranger here, what it's like to live as an exile. There's more to it than that. And that brings us to our second aspect. God's people journey while being distressed by trials. God's people journey, it's true, by rejoicing in both present and future circumstances, that certainties. That's what God's people do. But God's people journey while being distressed by trials as well. That is also what God's people do. And maybe, as I asked you, what is the Christian life like? What does it feel like to be a Christian? You might say, wonderful, and you might say, it's really hard. And Peter knows that. That's why he goes where he does in verse 6. He knows that, they, that the saints he was writing to were going through persecution, being slandered and maligned and ostracized. I mean, we wish our salvation was only joy, but it's not only joy. It's also being distressed. Distressed, or if you have the ESV, it says grieved. It's a strong word. It's to be saddened, to be sorrowful often over something particularly painful. This word is used of the disciples' response upon hearing Jesus' prophecy that he was going to be betrayed and killed. They were grieved. They were distressed. It's used of Jesus' own grief in the Garden of Gethsemane at facing the Father's wrath. He was grieved. This is a heavy word. I love that Peter puts in the same verse that you rejoice greatly, but you're also grieving. Because that is what the Christian faith is like. That's what, is, that's what our walks are like. As he describes in verse 6, he says, if, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed or grieved by various trials. The word there for trial, the word there for trial is an attempt to learn the nature or character of something. It's a test. It's a test given to, to determine the nature of something. See, persecution wasn't the only trial that these saints in Asia Minor faced. Peter describes them as various trials, various testings. Been distressed by various trials. And I think that that's encouraging for us because some of us may not be going through the same kind of persecution that others of us are, but we are all going through various trials. They may be physical trials. They may be emotional trials. They may be financial trials. We're all going through various trials. It's not only talking about persecution here. He says various trials, that these various trials have a purpose. And Paul, Peter here, encourages us. The first encouragement is, is that these trials are temporary trials. In verse 6, he says, now for a little while. And that should be encouraging to us as we are on this Christian journey. These trials are temporary. 
Now, he's not promising us that these trials are brief. But they will be brief in comparison to eternity. Even if these trials that we face, and some of you face physical trials that will last your whole lifetime, they're only now and for a little while in comparison to eternity. This doesn't make our sufferings less painful, but it does put them into perspective. He wants to encourage us. It's now. It's for a little while. Your trials are temporary trials. That's the first encouragement he gives. He gives another encouragement that these trials are necessary, if necessary. And that's encouraging to us. Because it's not as if God just glibly doles out trials. Let's just make life harder for them. The word translated necessary means what God has decided must happen. It is a necessity in God's plan. Jesus used this word many times to describe his own going to the cross. Luke 24, 7, saying that the Son of Man must, it is necessary, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Think about that. If God's plan, it is necessary that, it, that his own Son must suffer, we shouldn't be surprised that his plan for us includes suffering, that we must suffer, that it's necessary for us. Paul and Barnabas went through the churches that had been planted in Acts 14, verse 22. And they went around, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You have to enter God's kingdom through trials. God knows that you need them. They're necessary. We have to be. God never knows a better way. God never knows a better way, right? So the first encouragement is that these trials are temporary, they're necessary, but he also encourages us because they are purposeful. These trials are purposeful. And it says in verse 7, okay, so I'll, I'll go back to verse 6, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot going on with that verse. We'll try to make it clear here. Where it says proof in the New American Standard, the ESV says the tested genuineness of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. That you have, your faith has passed the test. That it has been authenticated. It is genuine faith. And that is the purpose of our trials, is to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. God plans for us trials to reveal that our faith in his son is genuine. Very much similar in Genesis 22 to God's plan to test Abraham. God knew what was in Abraham's heart. He says after the testing, calling him to kill his own son, but then rescuing him from doing so, God says in Genesis 22, 12, the purpose of this test, for now I know that you fear God. God was revealing that to Abraham. The purpose was that he, he would know that he feared God. And the purpose of our trials is that we would see the reality and the truth and the validity of our faith, that this is a persevering faith. That this is a faith. The fact that you are here, if you have been believing in Jesus Christ, if you are already saved, the trials that you have gone through are authenticating that you truly belong to him. You have persevered this far. There's nothing more valuable on earth than genuine, proven faith. He says in verse 7 that the proof of faith is being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire. More precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire. So I think here as Peter thinks about what is really valuable, he automatically thinks of gold. And then he has a couple, uh, first a comparison and then a contrast to gold as he talks about the value of our tested faith. So he says, being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire. So let's talk about, first there's a comparison there even though tested by fire. When gold goes through refining, I think most of you know this, the impurities are burned away. Gold's value increases, its worth increases, as more impurities are taken out, until finally you're left with 24 karat gold. 
which is soft so that you can't use it for many things, but it's very valuable. I don't know if you can't use it for many things. I know you can't make rings out and stuff. I learned, I learned a little bit about gold this week. God uses the heat of trials in our life to expose the genuineness of our faith. So he's making a comparison there that God uses trials to show that our faith is genuine. He uses, people use fire to make to refine gold. But there's also a contrast here. So he's saying that our, gold, our faith is more valuable than gold, but e, and here's, here's the contrast, but even gold is ultimately not eternal. Even gold at its most refined, at its most pure, after everything else has been burnt away from it, he says, which is perishable, which is kind of interesting because gold, though soft, is one of the most durable elements in the universe. It's interesting, one ounce of gold may be hammered thin enough to cover nearly 100 square feet of surface. So a 10 foot by 10 foot box, one ounce of gold. So he's saying that, 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 that it's perishable. And we would say, whoa, it's super durable. So what is he talking about it being perishable? Most commentators think that Peter's probably referring to when God recreates the new heaven and new earth in the eternal state. Peter describes this in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements of basic building blocks will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So I think what Peter's saying there is gold's valuable, and even when it's tested by fire and you get it to its most pure element, it's still part of this creation. It's still going to burn up. It's still passing away. That's not faith, though. Faith has value for eternity. It's indestructible. And we saw that in verse 5. You are protected by the power of God through faith. God keeps us believing for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it is interesting here. Peter's writing to saints, and it is a church that's going, many churches that are going through persecution. So this has probably been a refined body. He's not saying to some of them, I don't know if you have this kind of faith. It's possible and probable that there's some there who didn't know that, whether they truly believed him or didn't really believe in Jesus Christ. And that's true this morning here. So as I say this, I'm talking to the church who know and love Jesus Christ, who have him as their only hope. I don't know every one of your hearts and say that you have this kind of faith. But that doesn't stop Peter from saying this. And so I don't want to stop from saying this either. Peter explains why this genuine faith is so valuable. Verse 7, it says, It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may be found so that when you come before Jesus Christ, when you are evaluated by him, and it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when is this revelation of Jesus Christ? It is at his return. All humanity will see Jesus Christ when he is made most clearly known. Revelation 1-7 describes that he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. He will not be hidden in heaven anymore. Everyone in heaven and earth will see him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8 describes this revelation. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is when Christ returns to punish those who have not loved him, who have not believed in him, who have not obeyed him. But remember, he's encouraging them here. He's encouraging them about their faith. So what happens to the saints when Christ is revealed? When Christ is revealed, when, when, when the curtain of heaven is opened up when we see christ he will reward his people with praise and glory and honor it reminds us of the parable of the talents matthew 25 21 when the master returns from the trip he had entrusted talents to his servants when he returns the master says well done good and faithful slave you were faithful with a few things i will put you in charge of many things enter into the joy of your master well done good and faithful servant that is what we have to look forward to. That is the outcome of our faith. The outcome of these trials that refine our faith, that prove to us that we truly belong to Jesus Christ. And this is where the rejoicing starts again, right? 
We rejoice because we know Christ is coming back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 describes how we wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. That's an incredible thought, that God praises man, men whom he saved for the obedience that they've done through his son. So this is not about us saying, you know, I've been really wanting you know, for God to give me some kudos for my great job. This is, of course, about his glory. It's about, it's, it's about the foreword of a book where the author thanks all of those people who made that book possible. Or the graduating senior who thanks their parents for everything that they've done, who thanks teachers. This is really what it is to receive this praise and honor and glory, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, God does say, well done, good and faithful servant. He does praise them. He does reward them. He does honor them. But who ultimately gets that praise? Jesus Christ. It doesn't exclude God, but directs glory to God. Revelation 22, Jesus, 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And if you are in Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ is good news for you. He brings rewards, right? This is great. We look forward to those. Whatever rewards he wants to bring, whatever well-dones he wants to give, whatever honor he wants to give, because we know all of that was only done through him, and it is for his eternal glory. This is what our faith results in, and this is the value of our trials now as we continue to believe in Jesus Christ and continue to love Jesus Christ. Peter knows that the saints he was writing to were being distressed by trials. He didn't let them wallow in them. Our trials are temporary. Our trials are necessary. Our trials are purposeful. They reveal the genuineness of our faith, more valuable than gold. You need to know whether your faith is genuine. So we could begrudge the wise God for the trials he sends. We could trust him. But these trials are showing that we have the most valuable thing in the universe besides Christ himself. We believe in Christ himself. God's word, and it's such a blessing. It doesn't ignore our trials. Our trials are purposeful. Our trials, trials are the tools in the hands of our Father. He uses them to show that we have true and lasting faith. Your faith during distressing, heartbreaking, grievous trials reveals your faith that you have an enduring faith. A persevering faith. A faith that will end in you receiving praise and glory and honor at the culmination of human history, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's good news. As Peter, and I, and I love that he does this, he knows that they are rejoicing but he knows that they are grieving. He knows what it is like on this Christian journey. He's experiencing himself. He's been living this for 30 years. It's wonderful, but it's hard. But he doesn't stop there because the Christian life, it's more than about that. It's also about our devotion to an unseen Christ. And that goes to our third aspect. God's people journeys the first aspect while rejoicing in both present and future circumstances. God's people journey while being distressed by trials. And God's people journey while being devoted to the unseen Christ. God's people journey while being devoted to the unseen Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Peter stops. He talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He talked about the rewards you're going to get. And so he's thinking about Christ being revealed. Remember, this is a man who spent three years with Christ, who saw the resurrected Christ, and then, and then he encourages him. And though you've not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. What a beautiful way to describe Christians. This is also what the Christian life is like. It has inexpressible joy. It has grievous trials. But we love Christ. This is what it means to know him, to love him. We are those who love and believe in the unseen Christ. Peter commends the saints because though they haven't seen Jesus, they love him. It's interesting to think about how different Peter's experience was than theirs. Unlike Peter, they hadn't seen Jesus compassionately touch the leper. Unlike Peter, they hadn't seen his compassion on the rich young ruler who went away or how Jesus had compassion on the people, the sheep without a shepherd. Like Peter, they hadn't seen Jesus welcome the little children, eat with tax collectors and sinners, cast out demons, or bring the widow's son back to life. Unlike Jesus, they hadn't seen Jesus take off his outer garment and put that, the towel around his waist and wash the disciples' feet. They hadn't seen Jesus on the cross bearing the shame and punishment of our sins. And we are just like that, right? We didn't see that, but we love him. I just have to have a shout out here. We should be reading the Gospels. I'm not trying to add burdens to your life. How do we love Jesus Christ? By knowing him. Be reading in the Gospels. Know whom you love. We love him. We are just like these saints in Asia Minor who never saw Jesus. We haven't seen Jesus either, but we love him. We love him, 1 John 4.19 says, because he first loved us. We love him because those who have been forgiven much love much. We love him more than father or mother, son or daughter. We are those who count all things to be lost. You have the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's God's great grace to us, right? That you know him as Christ Jesus, my Lord. Perhaps Peter, more than any of us, more than any of us ever will be, was pierced by how little he loved Jesus Christ. We all know the story of how Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Here Jesus is hours away from taking God's wrath on the cross, and Peter says, I don't know him if he doesn't want to suffer. And so now this Peter is writing to these saints who love him. I can't imagine he's not thinking about this conversation that he had with Jesus after the resurrection. John 21, verses 15 and 17. Jesus talks to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably, most likely, to the other disciples. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I think it's interesting he just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, hey, I followed you. I've done a great job. Look at all my works. I'm still here, aren't I? He had denied Christ. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend, tend my lambs. He said to, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I think that's many times what we have too, right? Lord, look at all the ways I've obeyed you. Look how much time I spent in your word this last week. Look at my great performance. We just cling to, really to his grace and say, Lord, you know what's in my heart. You know that I love you. That's what it feels like to be a Christian. Hey, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Lord, you know that I love you. Peter continued. Looking, there's a cleanup here. Peter continued. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Unlike the apostles, we have not seen the resurrected Jesus. Unlike Paul or John in the book of Revelation, or even Stephen, who saw heaven open and see Jesus sitting on his throne as he was being martyred. We've not seen the ascended and reigning Christ. Our faith is not yet sight, but Jesus said in John 20, verse 29, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We have not yet seen Christ reigning on his throne, but we believe in him. We don't believe in Jesus as an abstract truth. Yes, he did these things. We don't even believe in Jesus just as a past tense event. Yes, he died for my sins. It's not just a, a systematic theology that we just check all the boxes and say that that's what it is to believe in Christ. It's not even just to believe in him as, as one person in two natures, the God become man who reigns in heaven. We believe in Jesus as him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. In Revelation 1.5, that's who we believe in him as. The one who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Or uh, Paul in Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what it is to believe in Jesus Christ. He is my only hope. He loved me and gave himself for me. We cling to his righteousness as our righteousness. We walk by faith and not by sight. Peter can encourage these saints in Asia Minor. Not because he knows each of these saints, but because he knows what a saint is. What a believer is. A believer is one who loves and believes in the unseen Christ, who is devoted to Christ. Many times we talk about Christians. What is a Christian? Someone who believes in Jesus Christ. We say it without even thinking about it. But belief without love is not true belief. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. not just a matter of saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Teens, that's, that's not all there is to salvation. It's hoping in Christ alone. It's loving Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? So what is being a Christian like? We, we started off with that question. What is it like to be a Christian? What is the Christian journey like? What does it feel like? to be a Christian? And I bet you probably felt as I did automatically. That's a complex question. And we see here from Peter that he got it. He understood that life, this pilgrim life, this sojourning life is complex and it is hard. It's wonderful, but it's hard. God's people journey while rejoicing in both present and future certainties. It is a rejoicing life. But it is also a grieving life as we are distressed by various trials. But it's a life of love and faith in Christ. Why did Peter have all this there? Why did he say all these things that were true about them? These aren't just doctrinal truths. He's not just, just teaching them theology. He wants them to know what your experience the joy you experience in all of this incredible truth, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the trials you're experiencing, which will have this incredible worth as the genuineness of your faith is revealed, finally resulting in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your love for Jesus Christ, whom you haven't seen, your faith in him. This is evidence of God's work in your life. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. I think that's what Peter wanted for these saints, for them to be encouraged. Is God working in your life? Be encouraged. You have the evidence of being an elect exile, an alien in this world, 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, we can't thank you enough for your word. We thank you for the sympathy from the Apostle Peter 2,000 years ago. We thank you for the realness of the book. Uh, we thank you, God, that you reach uh, out to us in our having experienced so much and yet longing for so much more. We love your son, yet we want to love him more. We know we've been saved, but we can't wait to experience more of the fullness of this salvation. We are those who greatly rejoice, but we also confess, Lord, we, we have been, been deeply grieved. We come trusting you. And I pray that you help my, my brothers and sisters who are struggling to trust you, that these trials indeed are necessary, that you have not wantonly and caringly subjected them to what they didn't need, Lord, but that you are wise and you do everything in the best possible way, Lord. We know that these trials are necessary, but they are hard. And, and, and what we see here is a stripping away that in the end, uh, Lord, I thank you that we have so much more than a tightly held system of belief, although I thank you for that. I thank you for our theologies. Lord, but I thank you for your son. I thank you that you have worked in our hearts that we love him. Lord, we, we, we read about him, and our hearts burst. Lord, they don't always burst as they should. We know that, Lord, but they, but they have burst. And I feel mine bursting now. I pray that the saints, Lord, would feel that even now. Lord, that we would love him and believe in him, that we would keep believing. Oh, please, Father, it is your power, we saw in verse 5, that keeps us believing. You protect us through faith. Please keep my brothers and sisters here faithful. Keep them, preserve them, Lord, that they may experience the final rejoicing we have when we have that even more inexpressible, inexpressible joy, full of glory joy, when we see Christ, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that uh, for those who don't know you, Paul had such strong words, Lord, let them be a curse, and I, and, and I just know that that's what the final, the final outcome is. He doesn't take any delight in that. Lord, for those here who don't truly love Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that they'd be awakened to that fact, that they would, you would open their hearts to see how beautiful he is, that you would do that sanctifying work of your spirit in their lives, that they would come to obey and be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your preserving. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together now, and then we'll take the offering after. <laughs>